Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, I participated in a Major League Baseball focus group survey this weekend. Wow, this is big. They heard they heard the conversations we've been having having over here. And they said, you know what? It's fine that it's time to formalize this. Yes. And they reached out to me personally. Uh, no, it was just one of those pop-up surveys that they give you while you're watching MLB TV. And they're like, do you want to take a survey to help improve customer experience? And I always yeah, say yes. They're always so much fun. I always say yes to those for most things, but especially when it comes to MLB. Although I was kind of expecting this one to be about MLB TV, the service. And it wasn't about that. It was like Which about. I'm sure you were sorely disappointed about. <laughs> I was ready no to make my thoughts opinions known. there. Yeah, uh, I've already done surveys about MLB TV, the product, and nothing has changed. In fact, things have gotten worse. So some might say I should have said the opposite. And I think they're trying to piss me off. I don't really know. This survey was about like the state of the game, which I was like even more up our alley. Mm -hmm. Great. They asked me about minor league baseball. They asked me who's the most exciting player in baseball. Ooh, what was your answer? I said Otani. I felt kind of like I was betraying Tatis because right. he's my personal most exciting player in baseball. But objectively speaking, right. Otani as, is the right answer. As far as like like crossover appeal and just broad, you know, regardless of fan base, just being 100% amazed at whatever this guy does. Like, yeah, it's it's Otani. They said why. And I it's I find it hard to just kind of express. They wanted <laughs> you to say why you thought it was the most exciting. Maybe I should have done something like I should have just picked someone really boring like I th uh, my most exciting player is Ryan Zimmerman I especially like how he never runs the bases anymore and he very rarely does anything except pinch hit yep <laughs> no I was like well uh, he's a top five hitter and a top ten pitcher that's kind of the whole thing it's kind of ridiculous uh, here's a question that they asked me Alex on a scale of zero to ten Zero to ten. Not one to ten. Zero to That's, ten. Yeah, I have some qualms with that, but we'll move past it. What is your current level of concern regarding the coronavirus, parentheses, COVID-19 pandemic? That's the whole question. Hmm. I guess, I guess in not this context. In the con no, it wasn't even, it wasn't like when you're at a game, what right. is your current level? It's <laughs> just, just like, generally speaking, on a scale of zero to ten, what is your current level of concern? I was Knowing like, I don't, the it's not a ten. It has been a 10 at some point, but it can't yeah. be a 10 right now. Right, exactly. And knowing actually the question 0 to 10 makes sense because there are plenty of people out there for whom 0 is the answer. Right. So I get what a, that. They know the what audience. an insane question to ask on an MLB survey, focus group survey. What would you say to that? What I, I wrote 7. <laughs> That's like my go-to for when I'm like, it's, a, right, exactly. it's affirmative, but not like all the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. I'm really curious about the thought process because you know that they, a, a group of suits sat down and said, okay, what do we need to know about our customers right now? Yeah. Maybe it's, um, yeah, uh, expenses of going to a baseball game. 
Maybe it is ability to stream baseball games in general. Yeah, they Maybe asked about all that stuff. They asked about right, household income, you know, zip code. Mm-hmm. They wanted to know all that stuff. And maybe it's, did you get Moderna or Pfizer? <laughs> Anyone get Johnson and Johnson? <laughs> like, I wanted them to get even weirder with it. Like, ask me stuff that's even less related to baseball. Thoughts on Jamie Spears extorting his uh, daughter for all that she's worth? Yeah. Uh, what did you think Lance of Donda? Takes. What, did you, yeah. <laughs> what did you think of Donda? Um, right. Donda or certified lover boy. Yeah. Why is that the binary? I didn't know that we had to just choose one of two albums that were most recently released. Uh, no, they also asked about minor league baseball. I got very excited to share my real true opinions about minor league baseball. They asked for about two questions and then they kept it moving, which seems appropriate. They said, are you a fan of minor league baseball? I said, yes. Then they said, check off all of the things that you like about minor league baseball. And there was a list of 10 things. And uh, I checked off most of them. And then they were like, which of these things that you checked off would you say is the biggest reason that you're a fan of minor league baseball? And then there was no open-ended option for it. (laughs) Mine is the between innings entertainment. And I say that only partially kidding. Yeah. It's way more enjoyable than uh, watching, watching a fan try and answer questions, trivia questions about his team. Or watch some scrub of an eight-year-old try and hit wiffle ball home runs. Like, sorry, clearly this kid hasn't heard of the launch angle revolution yet. I don't want to watch him sit know, up there and fail. Crushing grounders. Those <laughs> kids are just crushing grounders. Rolling the hands over too soon. Yeah, exactly. Got to stay back, my dude. <laughs> stay back loaded. Um, that's where all your power is at. Actually, for the the thing that I like most about minor league baseball, I ended up choosing the fact that it creates so much surplus value for owners. That was my selection. And they were like, thank you. Would you like to come work for the office? And that in that case, uh, this is my last podcast. That's really what this was, I think. It was just a, it was a ploy. It was to, like a job search. Right. It was like a back, backdoor job application. <laughs> At the end of it, they asked me if I was willing to participate in future ones. And if so, give them my name and email address, which, of course, I said yes and gave them my email address. Naturally. So maybe this is a job application. Maybe we should, uh, maybe we should focus group our answers next time, you know? Uh, should we send out, out to listeners? Yeah. Do you think that we should send out a questionnaire about the podcast? What is your least favorite thing about tipping pitches? Are you willing to hear <laughs> that? Uh, so are you pro-labor or anti-labor? I'm curious, guys. I want to know. If you're anti-labor and you're listening to this podcast, frankly, I'm more I'm curious. actually more interested. Yeah. Yeah. About how you found it. Uh every once in a while we get people who follow us on Twitter where I'm like, okay, how did you how did you find this and why did you stick around? <laughs> yeah. You did not know what you were getting yourself into. Okay. Uh we have plenty to talk about in this episode, so let's not waste any more time talking about f- free surveys that I did for MLB to acquire more information about their consumers. Uh, We're going to talk about the strike vote, which happened among the Oracle Park concession workers. Uh, We're going to be lucky enough to talk to someone from Unite Here Local 2, which is the union that these workers are a part of. We're going to hit on the latest in the back and forth about CBA negotiations, specifically about the proposal for when MLB players will reach free agency. Uh, We'll talk about MLB TV as always. We'll do three up, three down, but 
before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. In just a second, we are going to talk to Ted Wechter, who is an organizer and a spokesperson for Unite Here Local 2, which is the union that represents Oracle Park concessions workers, 930 of them. Many of our listeners or Twitter followers will have seen that 930 of them uh, who are employed by a subcontractor, Bon Appetit, they announced that they were going to take a strike vote last Thursday. They took that strike vote on Saturday. That strike vote was 96.7% yes with 86% turnout, which we're going to talk about with Ted in just a second. Um, But for context, the treatment of these workers has not been great, especially with regards to COVID. Um, And this kind of came out of nowhere, but it's sort of how these things happen. Like these negotiations don't happen in public until they need to happen in public. And so we wanted to talk to someone from Unite Here Local 2 to get a better understanding of the conditions that led up to this point. Yeah, I think that, concession workers at at sporting events are are really kind of the the unsung heroes of things i mean and you'll you'll hear ted kind of talk about some of the you know people they have to just deal with in their everyday and you know i think that oftentimes because their uh, struggles are not necessarily litigated in public or we don't necessarily have access to that sort of thing um it's easy to to kind of miss them in the in the story about about labor struggles um but i mean you you mentioned that you mentioned that workers don't strike for fun it sounds like ted might disagree it sounds like <laughs> ted, ted thinks quite a few people are are gonna have fun on this because it's uh it's not their first rodeo um but you're absolutely right that it's a it's a negotiating tool that you really only pull out uh, when things have gotten dire, which it sounds like they really have. So, and I mean, look, we got to say, like, these games don't happen without these people. Period. Like, exactly. these are essential workers to baseball organizations, and they should be treated as such. So, for more context with what's going on with the Oracle Park concessions workers and their strike vote, we are going to throw it to our quick interview with Ted Wechter from United Local Two. In the local hall, I'll be voting with them all. With a hell of a shout, it's out, brothers, out. And the rise of the factories fall. Oh, you don't get me out of the union. All right, we are now joined by Ted Wechter of Unite Here Local 2, an organizer and spokesperson for Unite Here Local 2. Uh, Ted, how's it going? Thanks for joining the show. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Ted, we wanted to bring you on because we want to know more about what's going on at Oracle Park. Obviously, um, in this past week, it seems like it's it's come, you know, become known to the public very quickly. It seems like things are moving fast, but but we know that stuff must have been going on behind the scenes for quite a while, and uh, you guys must have been putting a lot of work into um, the strike vote for quite a while now. So on Thursday, September second, is when at least I became. Uh, aware that there was going to be a strike vote. And then on, on Saturday, September 4th, was when we found out that that vote was yes to the tune of 96.7%. Can you mm. just take us a little bit further back into what's been going on this season and beyond into how you know conditions got to this point that the 930 workers at Oracle Park that are part of Unite Here Local 2 felt it necessary um, to take this strike vote right now? Yeah. 
When the pandemic hit, uh, our members were devastated. Many of the folks who prepare the concessions at Oracle Park, they've been there for 10, 20, even 30 years. Obviously not at Oracle Park, but a candlestick um, if they go back that far. Um, so for, for ballpark workers, it's really like a family and it's also a lifeline. It's how people provide for their kids. It's how people get their health insurance and put food on the table. Um, and so when the stadium was closed and games were played without fans, uh, it was really hard for folks. Um, many folks had, you know, there was almost no security and in health insurance. Um, people got really little support from either the Giants or from the Giants food service contractor, Bon Appetit. Uh, at this point now, people haven't seen a raise in three years. Um, and so I think first there is this sense of um, really needing to be a part of the recovery, having gone through a very difficult time with, like I said, very little support from Giants or from Bon Appetit, uh, and now wanting to make sure that concessions workers and their families can come back stronger. Uh, and then when we when the stadium did reopen, we entered negotiations with Bon Appetit about a number of things, including safety. Um, and one of the things that Bon Appetit did was assure us that it was going to be so safe that hazard pay wasn't even uh, appropriate to talk about. Um, it wouldn't be warranted um, that workers would feel really comfortable on the job. Um, but in the last several months, a number of the safety measures that had been in place previously in terms of confirming, for example, with fans that they were either vaccinated or had, had a negative test um, have gone away. And what workers have seen is a um, a dangerously irresponsible lack of enforcement of masking and social distancing measures in particular. 20 food service workers have been infected with COVID-19 at this point. Um, and so workers are now very afraid on the job every day. Um, and what we're asking for is first beefed up enforcement of safety measures in the stadium, health insurance, and hazard pay. Uh, and as you said, we took a strike vote on Saturday. It was a 96.7% yes vote. I think workers are really ready to do whatever it takes um, to win safety, healthcare, and hazard pay. I love that. Um, can you uh, talk a bit about how, what the response has been like um, kind of since that, since that strike vote or since things have really gone public? Um, how have negotiations changed at all, if, if they have? Mm -hmm. I think both companies are feeling the pressure. Uh, one thing that we always look at with the strike vote is turnout. You know, if you get, you know, 30 people to come vote yes, and it's an overwhelming 100% yes vote, that doesn't mean anything. In our case, though, we turned out about 86% of uh, active stadium workers. I think that's a real sign that people are actually ready to do this. Um, and now we're going to be back to the negotiating table Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of this week. Uh, and I think it's outrageous that COVID cases, COVID infections among these workers weren't enough um, to really move the giants in the bon and Bon Appetit to take this more seriously. But if a strike vote is the jolt they needed, um, uh, certainly we hope we can get to a resolution. And if we don't get to a resolution at the bargaining table, um, we're ready to strike. When you guys are at the bargaining table, I imagine that you're across the table from Bon Appetit, since that is technically the company that employs um, these concessions workers. Uh, fr from your perspective and from the rest of the union's perspective, as much as it, you can speak to it, 
are those negotiations happening more so decision making from Bon Appetit side or more so from the Giants organizational side? They're both responsible, um, but the Giants certainly have a great deal of power uh, in terms of telling Bon Appetit that they're, uh, they're, they have more flexibility in terms of the economics of their deal. Um, and uh, from our point of view, um, the Giants have a, a lot that they can do if they really want to make sure that concessions workers have wages that can sustain families, that the healthcare eligibility is such that people um, can actually get their insurance, especially when they're risking their health under conditions like these. Um, we do think the Giants have a lot of power to tell Bon Appetit, make this happen. We'll be happy to you know, talk through the little extra costs. Um, and then in terms of the safety measures, that's been a big problem because uh, you know Bon Appetit has taken some steps to address safety concerns. But when it comes to enforcing uh, the rules in the stadium, and in particular, when it comes to dealing with fans who might be breaking the rules, that's really clear that it's the Giants' jurisdiction. A particular concern, a lot of our members, they're working in the concession stands, they're cashiers, they're uh, handing the food over. And so they're coming into contact with guests who often refuse to wear masks and throughout the game often become under the influence. Um, and so there's a real sense of... Um, there's a real sense of fear, not only about the inf- the possibility of infection, but also about how a fan interaction could go wrong. Um, and so in that's, that's a place where having an usher or security person there who's enforcing the rules, or in some cases, we believe there are parts of the stadium that um, the Giants are treating as outdoor and no mask required, but where the, the amount of contact and the amount of ventilation really does warrant a mask requirement, that's places where the Giants need to step up. And to this point, I think before the strike vote, that communication really hasn't been there. Um, and so we're hoping that with the strike vote, um, uh, again, that some of that that heat will be there and there'll be some more urgency for the Giants to really meet workers, hear out their concerns and make some of these changes so that workers do feel safe coming to work and serving the fans. It's really striking to me that... No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> that you guys have or or that the the giant side has not really uh recognized these demands. I mean we've been in a pan- pandemic for almost 2 years now, a year and a half and this is the the first moment that things are really are really coming to a head. Um have you guys felt any sort of uh retaliation is that any sort of anything that your members were kind of concerned about i know that that's kind of a big um boogeyman i guess so to speak when uh when unions are kind of talking about uh, that sort of going up against management like that mm-hmm. i think first what you said about this moment is so on point i think there was a real hope that this reopening could be a moment where folks were together. And I think something really important to understand about the concessions workers at Oracle Park is, like I said, many of them have been working, serving Giants fans since the candlestick days. Many of them have, you know, born and raised in San Francisco, Giants fans since they were kids, went to the stadium when, you know, their parents took them to the stadium. It's like a, you know, um, it's a very much a labor of love 
to work these games. They know the players, and especially this season when you know we've had a little intrigue lately. Um, but uh, the Giants have been doing so well. We're looking at the playoffs. I think it could have been really special if um, people were back at work finally with this. You know, with 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 their coworkers who often feel like a family, supporting the team they love in a great season. Um, and so I think that is uh, a real um, disappointment. Um, that we're in this position instead. Um, but I think in terms of retaliation, you know, our union is a fighting union. These workers won their last contract with a strike in 2013. One raises, one, um, you know, protected their affordable health care. Um, and many of them, because it is a, a you know, a seasonal job, many of them were two, three jobs, and they might have jobs in other parts of the union hospitality sector in San Francisco. Actually, we, our hotel workers, went on a two-month strike in 2018, winning a $4 an hour raise and um, great affordable health care, a number of other measures. Um, but it's a, we're, we're a militant union, um, and, and a lot of these workers will have been on strike before. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why that enthusiasm, that turnout is so high, is first, the disappointment. There was, I think, a lot of hope um, about what this season could be. Um, there's a lot of anger about how the Giants and Bon Appetit have chosen to handle what could have been a really special kind of Giants family moment. Um, and then a lot of experience being on strike and winning a strike. Ted, there there are 930 workers about that you represent at Unite Here Local too. How many of the concession workers at Oracle Park is that? Is that all of them? Is that most of them? Or um... That's the vast majority. Okay. Okay. I was just curious for um, you know the listener's perspective as to how, how much of Oracle Park is, or the Oracle Park workers are going to be affected by this. Um, I, I promise that we wouldn't take up more than, you know, 10, 15 minutes of your time. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to know, um, as sort of like labor engaged baseball fans that they are? No, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the support. And, um, the pun I heard that I really liked was we're ready to win in a walk off. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I, I will, uh, we'll keep that as the rally cry for, for you guys, Ted. Um, and we'll be following along as closely as possible. If there if there does need to be a strike to necessitate better conditions, we'll be following along. If there's any publicly available strike fund or anything like that, um, we'd be happy to help contribute. So thanks so much for coming on, Ted. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. All right. Thank you to Ted. Uh, we'll be following Matt closely if they do end up authorizing that strike which now that they have that yes vote could happen at any moment that they feel it necessary uh a lot of the details of this alex i got from a write-up in sf gate by alex schultz so we'll link to that in the description there's a there's a really great write-up in 48 hills which is an independent san francisco uh news rag and uh it's an op-ed by by a Giants food service worker, Mark Norton, and it really kind of captures the the moment. So if you want to read more about it, uh, I would highly encourage you to to do so. It includes the anecdote where the Giants called the cops on on him for flyering outside the, the Green Day concert at Oracle. We love that. Yeah. 
yes, like Alex said, I would encourage everyone to read that. The link is in the description to this podcast. Um, and then the final thing I'll say on this is that maybe this is not as clear to everybody listening if you're not involved in a union or you've never personally been involved in a union. But if you get this many people to vote yes on a strike, shit is really bad. It's it's just a serious, serious indictment of the treatment of the company with which these workers are voting to go on strike against. In the middle of a season, like this is their livelihoods. Like they, they don't want to have to not go to work, but it's gotten so dire that they feel that it's necessary to the tune of 96.7% of the people who voted. That's all I'll say there. Yep, okay. Solidarity. Alex, are you ready to talk about the MLBPA and the MLB negotiating over the collective bargaining agreement renewal? <laughs> I hope you are, because it's all we're going to be talking about for the next four months. Let's talk service time, baby. Let's talk ARB. So kind of out of nowhere this past week, um, I mean, we've we've talked a couple of times in the past couple of weeks about, you know, news that was leaking out about the back and forth. We talked a bit about the salary floor versus the lowered luxury tax threshold business. But everything, there was nothing really radically different. Um, I suppose the salary floor was a was a restructuring of the system of payroll, but it wasn't really like something that we'd never considered. Now, this service time news that came out this past week, and I'll explain it in a second, I feel like was a bit of a bombshell. Like, I, I didn't really expect this coming. I never heard them floating this idea. And it just speaks to the nature of the closed door negotiations that are going to be unfolding over the next few months. And we'll start to get more and more once baseball stops and there's nothing else to think or write or talk about. But I was a little bit taken off guard by this. It kind of came out of nowhere to me. Um, and by this, I'm referring to, if you haven't seen by now, the fact that the that Major League Baseball proposed in lieu of having six years of service time over a player that you have drafted into your organization or signed into your organization, once they make their Major League debut, you have six years of control over them. In lieu of that system, you have six years of control over them before they become a free agent. In lieu of that system, Major League Baseball has proposed that you become a free agent based on your age, not on your service time. Now, this is an effort, allegedly, by Major League Baseball's side to accommodate for the fact that the Players Association has been uh, frustrated and annoyed over service time manipulation done by these clubs, specifically in the case of guys like Chris Bryant, Vladimir Guerrero, etc., etc., on down the line. Jared Kelnick, do we need to keep going? Should we keep going, Alex? Should we just name every, every big star who's ever debuted? Um, and this is MLB's answer they say okay well we won't manipulate your service time we'll let you become a free agent at this specific age now I want to get your reaction to everything and including like how it came out of left field but first Alex can I just say 29 and a half is such a controversial number to float out there in the first in the first time that this is being leaked it is so combative of a number to float because that has been the number 30 years old has been the number that the players association that people have been paying attention to this thing writers podcasters like us 30 years old is the number that we have been saying no mlb team wants to sign a guy after they turn 30 and the mlb side at the first possible negotiation says all right well you can become a free agent at 29 and a half and never get a chance to actually sign a big contract now I know I, I jumped the gun a little bit, so I turn it to you, my friend. What was your response when you saw this news leak out? 
first reported, I should say, by Joel Sherman of the New York Post. Got to give the Post their credit. The first thing I think that I took away from this is that Major League Baseball, the the side of Major League Baseball, the business, actually recognizes that this is a real complaint from players and that it's something they unequivocally have to address in the upcoming CBA, which is a start, honestly. I mean, this is a negotiating position and 29 and a half would be a boon to some players, to late bloomers who don't necessarily get good until 26 or 27, college age players, et cetera, and would absolutely hurt some of the game's youngest stars, right? Players like Juan Soto, players like Fernando Tatis Jr., guys who are stars by the time they're 20, 21 years old, right? Because then the team gets 10 years of control over them in exchange for what? It's kind of unclear. I, you know, they have, they've floated this billion dollar uh, number that would be kind of distributed in arbitration. The, the details of all of this are very unclear right now, right? We're really only getting bits and pieces of what's coming out. Um, and so while it's, it's obviously a pretty laughable proposal, this is probably the closest that MLB has come to actually acknowledging, hey, there is a widespread p- problem in our sport. Obviously, do the players ex- accept this? No. I mean, the, the, the word came out that they <laughs> responded quite negatively to this. <laughs> um, and again, we don't know all the details. Uh, but, you know, is an age-based pre-agency the worst proposal Major League Baseball has put out there? Maybe not. Is making it so that players are still spending the best years of their career under team control the answer? No. Definitely not. No. And it, I I mean, it does it address service time manipulation? Yeah, it probably does because teams no longer have an incentive to try and squeeze an extra year out of them by keeping them down for a month or so. But it, once again, still doesn't do anything to change the fact that players are giving the best years of their career under a non-negotiable contract with their team. Right. A couple things in there. Number one, the problem here. Yes, the problem is that they're manipulating service time. But the problem from like an existential labor perspective from the union side is that it's just what you said. The best year, best years of your career the prime of your career, when you are creating the most value for the team, you are making the least. That's the existential problem that MLB is sort of negotiating against. Like that is the qualitative problem. Now the quantitative problem is that MLB thinks that they can just monkey with service time whenever they want to. They can keep Chris Bryant down and they can win a grievance about it. They've been reinforced in that. But I should, I feel compelled to note that this is a problem of their own making of MLB's own making. Like, they agreed to this in the CBA. They agreed to not send someone down for arbitrary and capricious reasons. But they're just doing it anyway. And they're getting away with it. So, in my view, and I hope in the players' union, in in the union's view as well, which it seems like it is in the union's view, since they responded very negatively, 
in my view, they don't get to come in with the number that they want. Like 29 and a half is such, such a laughable number for all of the reasons that I said when I was introing this segment. You, They created the problem. So now they have to alleviate the problem. And now maybe even acknowledging that you would be willing to do an age-based thing is a step towards alleviating the problem. But like, I'm I'm happy to come back with a number. How about 23? <laughs> <laughs> like, if you really truly want to address the root cause of this problem, that you can't get a big contract until you're 29, and since so by the end of that contract, you are not as valuable to your team anymore. It, I would think that this would be in team's best interest too, by the way, to to avoid the Albert Pujols or the Miguel Cabrera or whatever that everybody says is like an anchor on the game, dragging it down and ruining team's ability to compete. I would think that they would want to come up with a reasonable solution to this problem as well, but that's a whole nother story. They actually just don't want to spend any money at all. Right. I mean, their reasonable solution that they came up is don't they spend came before up with or is after. just like, right, exactly. We don't have to spend those big contracts anymore. But if you really want to create a system where you're signing, a player is inking a deal and then that deal is running through the prime years of their career, then it would need to be like 23 and a half or 22 and a half. Because then for 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, that's the best years of your career these days. Players are coming up earlier and earlier. It used to be that 27 was the prime of your career. That was like on average when most players had their most valuable season. It's getting... Ben Lindbergh wrote an article about this a couple of years ago for The Ringer. It's, all, it's only trending younger and younger and younger. So if you really want it to be a quote-unquote free market which is what all these owners claim that they think that they want until it's their fucking antitrust-exempt little fantasy world that they've created where they can artificially suppress the value of this, these guys' labor just because they happen to have one of the 30 most recognizable baseball franchises in the United States. If they really wanted it to be closer to a free market, then they would just be like, yeah, it's way younger, like 24 and a half or 23 and a half or something. And then at least those like, those BS concerns that they have about like, well, we don't want to lose a player that we just drafted and put so much time into all that stuff. Like, okay, then pay him, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But they're never going to, I mean, that no. would, they would lose all leverage there. And yes. I mean, that would, uh, you know, render arbitration largely useless as well, which is oftentimes another tool that's used to, suppress players salaries because oftentimes arbitrators are looking at things like wins and rbis and batting average when they're evaluating these players which is as we know is just not an effective way of evaluating players in 2021 and it really wasn't 20 years ago either right but at least 20 years ago that's what the clubs were evaluating these guys on right so like at least the guys were getting good at those things yeah. Even if it wasn't like making the team better or more competitive or whatever, at least the guys knew that they were supposed to be aiming for RBIs and and mm-hmm. hits, you know? And being compensated as such. Exactly. And now you have like Joey Gallo, whose batting average is like 230, but also he's an incredibly valuable player. And then he goes to arbitration and the arbitrator's like, you're only hitting 230. And he's like, I know, I don't care. Yeah. And he's like, neither do any of my coaches. <laughs> neither does my owner who sells jerseys with my name on the back because the right. fans know that I'm good. As evidenced by and the And the arbitrator's like, well, can't do anything for you. You're only hitting 230. Yeah. The Yankees probably don't know what they're doing, trading for Gallo, honestly. I mean, do they know he's only hitting 230? 
The fans certainly did when they traded for him. <laughs> yeah. They're like, wait, this guy's kind of good. <laughs> he's been striking out so much as of late. <laughs> I'm just going to say I know, that. He's, he's, not, he's not playing well with the bat since he got there. But, you know, he's no, still a great so, defender. Another thing right. arbitrators don't care about. Right. They're like, do you... Do you make errors in right field? Nobody makes errors in right field anymore. You just don't catch a ball that another right fielder could have caught. Yeah. So, I mean, all that to say, there's still a ton of unknown here, right? It seems like there's really only been one huge proposal both ways, right? The players made theirs back in May. And this news that was coming out sounds like it was a part of that larger package that the that MOB came to the table with back in mid-August that included that salary floor and, and cap. Um, there's one other interesting nugget in there in Sherman's article, which notes that MLB was willing to effectively waive the, the escalating luxury tax penalties, right? Right now, if you go over the luxury tax threshold, it's, you know, you pay a 20% tax on the first $20 million. And then the year after that, you pay 30% tax and 50%, right? Like, and it gives teams an excuse to quote unquote, reset the the tax, right? Trade off all Trade your good players. Right. If you know, you know, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting that that the league is willing to dangle that as a, as a negotiating position. Now, again, it's one of these things where they are solving a problem that they have created. Yes. Right? I'd it's like we put, the, we put this in place and then we're going to be like, well, if you want, we could take it back for a price. <laughs> Yeah, we're holding the knife to your throat. We could take it away if you pay us. It's extortion. Yeah, right. It's legal extortion. They, they find the ways to do very illegal mafia tactics legally. I mean, I would find that compelling. Like, I would take that bait. Sure, Alex, I'll take that. that. That'd be great for competition. If I didn't think that the teams were just colluding to stay under the luxury tax anyway. Like, who is blowing mm-hmm. past the luxury tax multiple years in a row? There's one team over the luxury tax this year. One. One single team, one team, one of 30. So yeah. the luxury tax is a cap, actually. No, you're right. That is a that is a, a problem that is not only of MLB's own creation, but is, is m- part of a much larger systemic failure to actually incentivize spending and incentivize winning. And so obviously the two sides are incredibly far apart. At what this you- moment. I mean, and and we're only hearing what the league is coming to the table with, right? Like, we're not, we don't necessarily have insight into what the players are really going for here. So these are all executives who are leaking this stuff to the press, to their buddies Ken Rosenthal, to their buddies Joel Sherman. It really remains to be seen where the where the two sides actually actually come out. What do you think of my one-time penalty? on teams who lose 100 games in consecutive years. $50 million. Cut a check straight from the owner. You to, might as well spend that To 50- who? I don't know. <laughs> the players. And then as long as the owners evenly. don't have it, yeah. It gets to the players on the team that loses 100 million or 100 games. All right. Like, so if your team loses 100 games, <laughs> you get a $2 million bonus. <laughs> I'm sure that would work out. <laughs> well, like guys throwing games. No, I don't know. To the fans or something. Some shit. I want a rebate check 
at the I'm end of the that. year. If my team I mean, loses, if my team loses a hundred games, I want a rebate check. Yeah, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. Yep. I paid money to go watch your team play games. Steve Cohen, my Venmo is just my name, no hyphens. Come on, <laughs> send it, send it over, Steve. A hundred games can consecutive years is my proposition. I mean, one t- one year, like okay, if every single person on your team gets hurt, you have the year from hell. Fine, yeah, whatever. Happens. Steve Cohen shouldn't have to send fifty million dollars, although he should have to send thirteen billion five hundred million dollars to the U.S. government. But whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know what this is? It's a it's a starting negotiating position, right? You negotiate down oh, from this. I mean, no, no. This is what I think it should be. If I'm negotiating oh, okay, this, okay, I, okay. the tax is like two hundred and fifty million. Like you have to right. cut a check for two hundred and fifty million dollars to if you me end up under five hundred. You have to meet me in a parking lot. If you lose more games than you win, you have to meet me in a parking lot with a suitcase full of a million dollars every day for a hundred straight days. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, things are really fucked up shit is really fucked up over here man it's pretty hard to follow all of this stuff by the way because every mechanism is part of is is like influenced by another mechanism so like you said they also floated like a weird like one billion dollar pool of money to take and spread out among players who are uh in arbitration like what what does that mean is that like a is that like a escalating $1 billion? Or is that like $1 billion every year for the extent of this contract? I don't know. Like we just don't right. know any of those details. So right. it's arbitration, really- arbitration payouts are were under a billion last year. So is it right? Is it a cap that they are saying? You know, you can't and they're never going to agree it, to that. Like like the, right. the players association is never going to agree to capping what arbitration eligible players can make because in one year, there might be like 30% more players who are eligible for arbitration just by the fluke of how many guys made it to the majors based on one draft. So like, mm-hmm. that's not a tenable solution. It has to be like, like arbitration now is you can make up to the average of players in your age or whatever. Like it's, it's a whole very complicated system, which is why it's very hard to talk about all of these moving targets, but it was at least worth it for us to kind of talk about the age-based free agency system which you know it's it's a not a non-zero chance that this happens it's just a matter of like what other concessions the PA can take in exchange for that like for Juan Soto maybe maybe guys who were called up like under 22 they're still like a 6 year team control thing like it has to be some kind of blend so that Juan Soto is not under team control for 10 years. That's insane. Yeah. This is really just about Juan Soto is what it's coming down to. Is Protect Juan if Soto. You, if you hurt this man, if you exploit this man any more than you're already doing. Get Juan Soto to free agency so that he can sign with the Mets. For the love of God, this is a selfish act by me. I just want him to get free agency and I want Steve Cohen to sign him for $600 million. Come on, Uncle Stevie. All right. As long as he's not booing the fans. <laughs> Putting his thumbs down in the outfield. <laughs> uh, let's talk about MLB TV really quickly, Alex. Uh, it's fucked. MLB TV is fucked. I don't know if you saw this, but things aren't going well for regional sports networks. It turns out if you limit access to a product that already pe- fewer people want to watch, it means that over time it's going to shrink and you're going to make less money on it. Right. Especially when you can get that product in a much more streamlined way elsewhere. 
This is very, a very unwieldy subject to approach. We're talking about the article that Evan Drellich wrote in The Athletic this past week um, discussing MLB TV and cable blackouts. He, we'll link to this in the description. Unfortunately, it is behind a paywall, so if you don't have an athletic subscription, I hope that you have a friend like Alex who will send you a PDF version of the article to read so that you can talk about it on your podcast. Anyway, Evan Drellich did a really good job of writing up kind of the tensions that are pulling in every direction um we are firmly in unstoppable force meets immovable object territory with cable blackouts mlb tv and regional sports networks now it's not worth me trying to explain everything that evan Drellich lays out in this piece he talked to regional sports network executives he talked to um, people on the mlb side trying to understand why it seems like we can't just take the obvious solution and make every game available on MLB TV. Well, I don't know how much of the nitty-gritty you want to get into this, but it's essentially like a never-ending thread that once you start pulling on making these games available without blackouts on MLB TV, then regional sports networks start to pull out of their deals with MLB and they no longer make like anything close to what they're currently making right on these rsn deals regional sports networks are the reason that revenues have boomed over the last two decades and the reason why franchise valuations are just skyrocketing and the only reason regional sports networks are willing to pay that much money is the name of the game is exclusivity they need it to be exclusive to cable packages that people watch on televisions in their homes now this seems absurd if you're not like some weirdo cable executive insider, but this is the reality of the situation. RSNs pay MLB hundreds of millions of dollars every year just to broadcast the games because having live sports, even if it's in a sport like baseball where it's supposedly dying every six minutes, having live sports is an incredibly valuable proposition for cable channels. It fills innings there's 365 days a year there's 162 baseball games all of them last three and a half hours you can sell commercials during all of them that makes you a lot of money if you're an rsn right because teams basically say hey we will give you the rights to broadcast our games exclusively you'll pay us for it and then the regional sports networks like valley sports owned by sinclair turns around to direct tv or Comcast or however however you get your cable packages and says, hey, we have the exclusive rights to broadcast this game. You can buy it from us for insane amounts of money. And, and all of the yes, and all and Verizon is like, yes, we need to have mm-hmm. live sports. Imagine, imagine Verizon or DirecTV or Comcast or YouTube TV or whatever being like, hey, buy our product. We just don't have any live sports. Like That's just not going to work in the year 2021. That's one of the only things that people still come to live TV for in this era of streaming and whatever. So that is like the delicate house of cards that all of this is built on. And you and I have always just been like, okay, the obvious solution here is I pay $20 extra to MLB TV and then they just take that blackout restriction off. Like, they just remove it. But 
this is the inherent tension and this is why it's so hard to understand, then the RSNs are like, then we're not paying you any, for it anymore. Right. Well, we don't have the exclusive rights. What do we, what do we pay for? That value is gone. Yeah. I am just not really sold on the fact that enough people have MLB TV that it would really diminish the value of the product of showing live TV on live baseball on television. Like, how many MLB TV subscribers are out there who are like, who have cable right now to watch MLB games only? You follow what I'm saying? So, like, what person who pays for cable in 2021 is going to cancel their cable subscription because they have MLB TV and now can watch their local team? I don't know who that person is. So, this like boogeyman scenario. This doomsday scenario where RSNs are just like, we're not paying you any money at all unless it's completely exclusive. I just don't totally buy that. And I don't think that it's... Obviously, it's scary enough that MLB is not willing to risk it. But to me, it's like the value of growing your game in the future is way more than whatever short-term hit you're going to take because RSNs are like, we don't have exclusivity anymore. Right. I mean, I think the inherent tension here is that people are canceling their cable subscriptions. Kind of left and right. So the RSNs are doubling down on needing to get more money for the exclusive Right, and RSNs, the the heads of these RSNs are shitting themselves because, and not even just the RSNs, but the cable network executives are shitting themselves and saying people are fleeing our product in droves. And so we need a reason for people to stick around. Now, I mean, it's it's especially problematic for teams because they're really in a bit of a catch-22 right now because they have sold off their exclusivity rights. And these are like not really renegotiable deals. Right, exactly. And Because the money's already being spent to redevelop Chicago by the rickets. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's just it, right? Is like you wonder why these teams are getting into real estate developments. It's because... They see the writing on the wall. They see that their team's valuations can't be held up by these insane cable deals forever, right? I mean, if you are, you know, a random baseball team, like you probably want to get into streaming, but you can't do that because you've locked yourself into this, uh, this deal with cable networks that absolutely don't want to let you get out of that. Right. And so what do you and so what do you do now? Now that you've built all your your entire revenue on buying these cable on on fan on people who aren't even fans of baseball buying cable packages, right? Like it's not even just baseball fans. It's uh you know, Joe Schmo who in uh in Seattle who just wants to f- watch the evening news, but the package of, of cable that he buys happens to include wherever Mariners fans are watching their games right now, right? Root Sports. Yes. That's, that's that's the big thing. Those people are leaving streaming and as a result as the... Leaving as the, cable. I, I are leaving cable for streaming. That's a really important part of this too. And that, which Evan Drellich lays out really nicely in the article. I'm just going to read from it really quickly because that's a really important thing to understand here as to why it's such a tenuous situation. It's such a house of cards. Going direct to consumer could be a scary proposition for the teams and in particular the RSNs. Live sports drives television, and in turn, television has driven the climb of revenue in baseball for years. If you subscribe to cable and your cable company carries the RSN on basic cable, you're paying for that RSN whether you actually watch it or not. 
teams and cable companies and RSNs all benefit from that system. But what happens if only if the only people paying to watch baseball games are only the people who want to actually watch? Mm-hmm. That's, what happens if you have a bad baseball team? You stop paying. <laughs> you yeah, cancel all your of a subscription. Sudden, what your happens? Franchise if, value plummets. This is the thing. Like. Welcome to the real fucking world, guys. Sorry that cable was such a boon for you for so long while putting in no effort at all. Like, this is this is the real world. If Disney Plus put out no good shows and didn't have any back catalog, guess what? No one would subscribe. But they do put out good shows. Your mileage may vary on that or whatever. But they put out shows that people <laughs> are interested sure. in. They put out... Mandalorian was good, guys. They put out shows that people are interested in watching and people like watching old Disney movies with their kids. So they got a lot of subscribers. Far be it for me to come on here and praise literally the Walt Disney Corporation, but everybody else is existing in the real world, and there and MLB is like, no, let's keep it 1981 around here. That's such an important part of this, and that's why I wanted to read directly from Evan Drellich's piece because anyone who has cable, whether they watch sports or not, you said this already, but anyone who watches cable is paying for the RSN. They just don't know it. It's included in the price. $115 a month. Whatever you pay for cable. $127 a month. I don't know what cable costs anymore. Last time I paid for cable, it was like five years ago. But your five of those dollars are going to the RSN. That's just how the contract is structured. If you look in the fine print, five of it is because you have the Yes Network. You don't get to choose to take out the Yes Network or not. But five of it is going to the Yes Network. Come rain or come shine. Now, if we just took away those exclusive rights and the Yes Network only got money from people who signed up for MLB TV and paid the extra $20 like you and I are laying out as an option, as a reasonable consumer side option, then they would be making like a percentage of what they make now, like 1% of what they make now. And that would put every RSN out of business, every single one. Yeah, I think the the reasonable uh, suggestion of what may be to come is more partnerships with these direct-to-consumer streaming services like YouTube TV, like uh, Hulu Live or whatever it's called, right? Because I don't, I don't think that MLB TV is valuable enough to, and frankly, it really does not work nearly well enough to be able to entice uh, fans to exclusively rely on that to watch games. I think that you may start seeing... MLB teaming up with these uh, other companies who have already got their live streaming down and offering a package there. But again, they make a fraction of what the cable companies are making right now. That's so So. dumb, though, because they already have it. It's literally called MLB TV. People already subscribe. Just make it better. Like, I don't know (laughs) the formula. I, I I don't know what makes the math work to make all of these properties happy, but I don't really care. Cut the RSNs loose. I don't care. But MLB TV is, MLB is not willing to do that because that would be such a massive hit to their short-term profits. And again, it, it brings me back to the complete and total lack of interest and foresight from the MLB side. Every year that this goes by without them solving this problem, they are digging themselves in deeper and deeper and deeper because fewer people are going to be watching cable, which means the RSNs are going to need the exclusivity more and more and more. And 
people are going to be diverting their streaming dollars in other places. So when MLB launches their streaming service or when MLB tries to launch a revamped MLB.tv, it's going to be harder to ask people to pay for it. All that to say that this is a looming problem for not just Major League Baseball, but sports leagues in general. Because at some point, the lenders come asking for their money back for the 500 million that they invested in your team or whatever it is. And if you're not actually able to foot the bill because these RSN deals aren't paying out anymore, you start to be in a little bit of trouble. So it's time for them to start coming up with a solution. Uh, I'm interested to see what that solution is. It's probably just pay us more money for MLB TV. Double the price of it. (laughs) One year, it's just going to be $250. And we're going to pay it. Will we? I won't. No, I, I, I don't think that I will. I think that I will just illegally stream. But you know that if it comes to if it comes to that, they're going to crack down on illegal streams way harder than they are currently doing. Yeah, probably. But that's a whole other can of worms. Yes. That's, yeah. Agreed. Um, I'm sorry if none of this made sense because it was all a bunch of cable executive mumbo jumbo i encourage you to read evan Drellich's piece um because if you do you will understand this this specific thread and why mlb is very very reluctant to pull it we are going to take a quick break we're going to hear a word from our sponsor baseball prospectus and when we come back alex three up three down we're coming down the home stretch of the baseball season And while the weather gets cooler and the pennant races heat up, the Baseball Prospectus Podcast Network is here to take you all the way through the playoffs. Twice a week, catch up with the five most pressing and mostly baseball news topics of the day with our flagship podcast, Five and Dive, hosted by Craig Goldstein, Bradford William Davis, and Emma Bachelieri. If Fantasy League playoffs are on your mind, there's Flags Fly Forever for your late-season redraft needs, and there is no off-season for Dynasty Leagues. Stephen Goldman's Infinite Inning blends baseball history and interviews with the writers of today, while For All You Kids Out There covers whatever is going on with the Mets this week. Our Prospect Teams podcast, Three Quarters Delivery, is ready to ramp back up as we head into another prospect list season. For all these shows, just search for the Baseball Prospectus Podcast Network wherever you download podcasts. Okay, Bobby. It's that time of the pod. You know what it is. Three up, three down. You ready for it? I know you're freaking out over a, over a Mets game as we speak, but I, you know, I need you to take a deep breath, center yourself. This is the, you know, this is our, our cornerstone right here. I'm no longer freaking out about the Mets game because it's over and they lost. There's, you found your third down. Uh, uh, do you want to start with up or down this week? Let's just start with down, I guess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know uh okay you want me to kick this one off uh sure go ahead my first down this week is an update on our our mound alterations in the atlantic league 61 feet six inches that's where we're at right now you know who's not happy about that the players in the atlantic league <laughs> They are fucking pissed. Let me just tell you that. Uh, RJ Anderson over at CBS Sports had a great write-up over how the changes have gone down uh, in the the league. And 
players are really not enjoying being treated like lab rats, which I don't know. That's that's shocking. I don't think we would have expected this over the last couple of years. All the all the tinkering using the Atlantic League as a as a lab for Major League Baseball's future. But here we are. Um, not only is the jury kind of out on whether or not it's having any sort of impact. In fact, research from baseball prospectus suggests strikeouts and home runs might actually be up, which would be really funny. Can I just say that? The players have really not enjoyed this shift to the point that they were actually on the verge of a work stoppage ahead of the implementation of this rule because they felt like they were being exploited, like the the chances of injury were going to go up, that the quality of play was going to go down because it was no longer being treated like a normal baseball game. And ultimately, those threats of a work stoppage are squashed because, again, players like the minor leagues, players have very little leverage in this situation because Major League Baseball and the 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 people who run the Atlantic League have uh, far more incentive to cut these players loose because there are plenty of players who will play for pennies. Just for the record, uh, in in my version of a minor league baseball union, it includes the independent leagues. Just saying. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you swing that, <laughs> but I mean, if you think, well, it'd be like two separate major- unions under the same umbrella. Okay, sure. So we're just starting two minor chapters. leaguers local. Yes. Right. Local. One, two, yes. three. Mm-hmm. Why not? But I mean, that's a that's a salient point because Major League Baseball sees the Atlantic League as enough of a partner to actually be able to implement changes that potentially alter the course of these players' career, right? Players who potentially are using the independent leagues as a path to playing in the minors trying to make it to the major leagues. And the fact that that opportunity is potentially at risk because Major League Baseball wants to use them as a playing ground, I don't know. It really it doesn't sit right with me. And I, and I respect that these players actually got to the point of discussing what it would take to shut that shit down. And it's it's a bummer that they didn't feel they actually had the leverage in this situation. Such an affair. Like, I know that this is not why it's structured like this, but it's, it ends up being, it ends up being sort of nefarious the way it is structured where like the Atlantic league is partnered with MLB. So these players are not like part of the minors. So they're not like employees of the team. They're literally just like, like being experimented on by a separate league that they didn't, choose to join when it was structured this way they're like independent contractors who didn't sign up to be independent contractors solely because the commissioner said we can probably make some money out of this they're like independent contractors for a company that got acquired except they didn't actually get acquired (laughs) like they're just you know what i mean like they're not employed by it's just so silly um it is silly okay my first down this week is also about minor league baseball um, even though I know, Tight. even though I know that the Atlantic League is not technically minor league baseball, um, my first down is about the Somerset Patriots, which are the AAA affiliate of the New York Yankees. 
the recently acquired AAA affiliate of the New York Yankees. Um, during Hurricane Ida last week, there was really, really devastating damage done to, um, m- I mean, many places all throughout the east, eastern seaboard where Hurricane Ida passed through. One of those places was Somerset, New Jersey, where the Patriots play. Um, a number of the Patriots players' cars were damaged in the flooding that went on in New Jersey, and a lot of their belongings were destroyed, including baseball belongings. And that's a down for obvious reasons. It's specifically a down from Major League Baseball and from the Yankees because I saw Adopt a Minor Leaguer, um, which is a which is a 501c3 organization similar to more than baseball. They they help um, fund. They help get assistance and direct aid to minor leaguers who are making straight up no money, as we've talked about a million times on here. Um, I saw them tweeting out like a link to donate to help to replace some of those belongings and and items that the Patriots players lost in some in in the flooding. I struggle to comprehend the thought process of a major league baseball club who watches their players lose their belongings in a flood in a location that you've asked them to move to and then is not willing to reimburse them for those items, especially given the fact that they are not compensating them fairly for their labor. And they know that I just like, I struggle to understand that level of malfeasance and frankly evil. It's just ridiculous. These are the Yankees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, well, and it speaks to a much l- larger impending issue that sports leagues in general are going to have to deal with over the next decade, two decades, which is climate change. Right? I mean, some of you may have seen the, the photos of their stadium in which it was entirely flooded, right? Like flooded up. Inside the the stadium, water flooded up to like the second deck of the seats. I mean, it was ridiculous. And it's a shocking image. And it is a shocking image that we are likely going to see more more of uh, very soon. Did you see John Sterling got stuck in flooding on the way back from broadcasting a Yankees game at Yankee Stadium? No, I missed that. He was able to call the Yankee Spanish language uh, broadcaster who came and helped him. But like, I don't know, man, if that's not like a red, a red flag for you. I mean, also, why is your broadcaster broadcasting away games at Yankee Stadium? I don't know. I'm sure from his home. I'm sure broadcasters would tell you that they prefer to do it at the stadium because it's easier with the tech set up and everything. But no, you're right in highlighting the fact that like this is a this is not going to get nothing but worse. And I'm just like, not. I'm not sold on the fact. And why would I be? I've seen zero evidence that MLB is ready, that MLB and like every business, frankly, that operates for profit, that these places are ready to take care of the people under their employ. They don't handle easy problems well, and this is not going to be an easy problem. So like, unless I see a real fundamental structural re- reclaiming of what it what the employer employee relationship is in baseball and beyond i i have very very grave concerns about the way that climate change is going to affect workers in this country and elsewhere yeah 
we're going to talk more about this this off season about <laughs> what it means to play baseball under the Anthropocene. But for now, should we continue on? Yes. What's my next, next one is is going to feel uh, quite trivial compared to literal flooding, um, but. We power forward. The MLBPA this week uh, tweeted about Marvin Miller and his induction into the Hall of Fame this week, his long overdue induction, as we mentioned last week. It was a largely bland tweet about the, the guy and his history, how he devoted his life to advancing the rights of workers. But friend of the pod, Keith Olbermann, not a fan. Not a fan. He replies, Nice of you guys to sell out the first established MLB marketer, Tops, to recognize the MLBPA and pay it the seed money with which Marvin literally rented your first office. Ungrateful children. Oh, God. I l- when will I be free? I don't even really want to unpack all of that, but... I can do it in like 30 seconds. I mean, MLB my dude needs is, to stop living in the 20th century. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, MLB is not leaving tops in the lurch solely because they hate tops. And they're certainly not doing it because they don't respect Marvin Miller's legacy. The MLBPA, I should say. The reason that they're moving on and going to fanatics, however controversial it might be, is because the tops executives were just like, they thought that the power of momentum would keep them in negotiation with MLBPA and they were offering them shitty deals. So the MLBPA right. you know, walked you know away from that fanatics? shitty deal. Yeah, they probably said, hey, this is going to make more money for our workers. Yep. And I, I struggle to imagine what issue Marvin Miller would have with that. Right. He probably would have said, no, keep the old deal for nostalgia's sake. Kurt, come on. I, I know that you feel exploited by these teams. But look, you've been with them forever. <laughs> what? Come on. Why would, you, why would you change a good thing? Yeah, Marvin Miller famously never disrupted anything. Uh, <laughs> just kept everything rolling exactly down the same train tracks. Yep. Okay, my next down this week is... I don't even know how to phrase this. Uh, um, obviously, it came out this past week that Zach Scott, acting Mets GM, uh, was arrested on suspicion of driving under the influence um, or driving while intoxicated, I guess it's called in New York State. Uh, I guess my specific down this week is that it seems like the Mets are awfully shocked and awfully disappointed awfully frequently in 2021. And, you know, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily fair in all cases to take specific instances and specific anecdotal evidence as indicative of a larger culture but I feel as though the Mets have crossed that threshold and then some like there there seems to be a cultural lack of accountability happening within the New York Mets organization and I have people telling me you know just wait for Steve Cohen to root it out and I have people I see people saying you know it's only been one year under this new management and whatnot and I I just I don't really understand what that means. I don't know why Steve Cohen would change anything. I, I, I've seen no evidence as to why it's getting better. Like this is a Steve Cohen. Zach Scott is a Steve Cohen hire. 
Jared Porter was a Steve Cohen hire. And whether those hires happened under the old methods or if Steve Cohen didn't have a chance to institute his new methods of vetting and hiring, then it still falls on him because he was still the person who signed off on it. So it's like, you. I just am endlessly frustrated over teams charting out the same excuse every time when stuff like this happens. Like, how could we have... How could we have known? Well, you couldn't have known, but you could have done more to sort of buffer your your chances of hiring someone who might do something stupid like this. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to a real, much broader, much deeper cultural issue that goes far beyond who owns the team, right? There is a lot of institutional failure here, right? And that's outside of this particular story because right? yeah, this is like can, a lot of this is more this is like 80 20 individual failure right like this, exactly zach scott like what are you doing what the hell yeah. like there there are so many you don't need me to be on a podcast people listening to this podcast don't need me to say that it's so easy to plan ahead and not drive drunk or drive under the influence of something but it's so fucking easy to do that especially when you're a rich gm of one of the 30 teams in major league baseball so yeah i'm not gonna i'm not saying that it's completely like the new york mets organization's fault but like they're not showering themselves in in grace in the light of it sandy alderson taking longer to say anything about this and not writing a medium post about it when he was really quick with the medium blogging fingers to say something about javi bias it just doesn't it doesn't reflect well on the organization and i I think that if you pulled the curtain back, it would reflect even worse. Yeah, I think there's a misconception that when Steve Cohen came in, that the Wilpon era was over, and with it, all of the poor practices that they had put in place. And I think what a lot of people are learning right now is that you cannot change culture overnight. And I don't really know why people are expecting the culture change from Wilpon to Cohen to necessarily be a positive one. I'm not the first person to bring this up, but you remember when Steve Cohen literally had to pay the SEC a billion dollars because he was breaking market laws? Or do you remember when he's his old firm is still facing a sexual harassment case lawsuit? I mean, it's just like, like I don't... <sighs> the I guess I'm going to talk about the A's now. Yeah. Talk about the A's. Just how they lost some games against the Blue Jays. Yeah. Well, feels kind of. Go ahead. That one I, feels more of a down, but uh, it's okay. I, you know, they lost games against the Blue Jays <laughs> in kind of in kind of tragic fashion. Yeah, they it's sure not, did. It was not quite enjoyable to watch. Um, Marcus Simeon is going to be an MVP candidate this year. The you know the one who used to play for the A's. I recall that guy who terrorized the A's this weekend. I mean, that's kind of you get what you deserve. Yeah. I, I really, I can't really, really blame the Blue Jays or Simeon or for anyone else. They kind of deserve to get smacked around. That's what happens when you lowball a player like him. To me, that was like Murphy's Law, where it's like, yes, the A's chose not to sign him. So what would be the worst possible thing? What could go wrong here? facing the Blue Jays at home. Marcus Simeon up with a chance to hit a walk-off home run. Of course it's going to go wrong. Of course he's going to hit a home run. 
Yeah. But Moneyball, dude. I'm sure he'd be cool with million dollar payouts over the next 10 years. He was like, you know what? I am Bobby Bonilla. I am worth that. I'm not a in, top, in I'm the not prime a of my career M- MVP candidate. Nope, that's not me. Maybe MOB should come to the table with that. You know, universal like ten year payouts, like a yearly cap for how much money you can make. So sure, I mean you can. We don't make salaries anymore. We make four hundred one ks. Exactly. <laughs> uh, things are good here. Okay, what's what's last down for you? All right, last down for me, Alex. This isn't, I don't know if this is a down, but I had a hard time coming up with a third down this week. This is more of a, like a mid, medium. This is like a check swing. Is there a way to make like a half out? Like maybe there was an out and then it got replayed and then it was overturned into a, to a safe. This is the, is this like the, the dropped third strike reached first of three up, three down? Yeah, that's a good one, actually. Cause I'm willing to be convinced that this is not a negative thing. But I just don't know. I just, I'm not sure that Jerry DePoto is a good GM. <laughs> it, it came out this past week that DePoto and Scott Service had agreed, both agreed on multi, multi-year contract extensions. And I saw a lot of people being like, yeah, Jerry DePoto's gonna, done a good job. Has he? This goes back to our conversation about tanking last last week. Although, I'm not sure if I'm being fair to him or if I'm just kind of lumping him in because he's like, he talks about how smart he is a lot and he's like, has a podcast and whatever and he like tinkers and whatnot and he's like sort of the GM as the main character, which I never really like. But he he's not, he hasn't tanked on the Mariners, but he also kind of really hasn't delivered on anything yet. Amid the fact that they've also done some bullshit service time manipulation like every other team does. I understand that. I'm not totally convinced that he's like this wonderkind GM. I mean, Am I he, wrong? Feels, he feels very akin to me to Billy Bean, right? Who kind of plays the the middle ground the entire time and does the the kind of, you know, slow upgrades, trading a player for two players and trading one of those players for another player, you know? And it's like, the goal is never necessarily about winning. It's about not losing long-term, which like... You can make a case that for some teams, that's a more viable path to success because then you luck into a playoff spot every once in a while. You know where the Mariners are? Ahead of the A's in the standings right now. Yeah. But like, so like, I, I no, I, and I don't think that makes him a good GM necessarily. I do think that they probably have a decent player evaluation team. Their player development team probably leaves something to be desired. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that this stuff is never complimented with any big signings is the real failure. Right. It's yeah, this idea of like, like trying the to Robinson trying to signing squeeze, and that's it, but that was before him. Right. Trying to squeeze the most value out of a specific player. Trading Kendall Graveman for Abraham Toro, which turned out well. If you when you look back on it, yeah. Kind of turned out okay. It, this is but just those things always it's just like, don't always pan out. I just am not. I don't. GM theater just doesn't carry any currency with me, and he strikes me very much as like a theatrical. I'm the GM here. You know what I mean? Like the moves are almost the point. 
And I, I guess that's frustrating for me because, like, actually, no, the point is actually winning and making the playoffs, which he hasn't done yet. And he's had, like, quite a while now. I don't know. Maybe five years from now, I'll sound stupid for saying all of this and they'll have won three World Series and all of the players that are in their system will come up and be great. I don't know. I guess I'm just not really, like, the, the whole, like, round of applause for the GM, everyone. I'm sorry to say. Is it down for me? I mean, yeah, it's going to take John Stanton actually opening up his pockets to put a reasonable baseball product on the field that is not composed of pre-yard players. All right, this is not a Mariners podcast. Let's move on to up. Could be. We can make it work. Uh, My first up this week is a wonderful piece from our good friend, Bradford William Davis, over at Business Insider, investigating... Who erased Devin Williams' tribute to Black Lives Matter on the mound last year? It is a great read just because Bradford took this job very seriously. Um, Devin Williams, in August of last year, had, uh, with his cleats, just inscribed BLM on the back of the mound before pitching an inning when the the Reds, the team that the Brewers were playing at the time, came out the next inning, when one Trevor Bauer came out to pitch the next inning, the BLM was gone. It's this question of who did it. And the result may not be as surprising as you might think. I am not going to say the name of the person again who was pitching, but uh, Bradford goes down a, a hole and and talks to some players, some people who uh, may have been in the vicinity at that time to try and get to the bottom of this. And it is, uh, it's worth your time, if only because it highlights baseball's internal struggle, cultural struggle right now. I agree. And it's a good read because Bradford's a great writer. Bradford is the best. Um, my first up this week is actually... I, I felt bad putting this in up because I, I was going to bring up Marcus Simeon, but you already talked about it. You already got those feelings out. It's walk-off home runs, Alex. Mm, you know what's yeah. cool? Walk-off home runs. Hell yeah. They're amazing. So one of the first one was Simeon. The crowd reaction and that cut to first base as he's rounding first um, and the camera is shaking. That's just like the coolest thing in baseball. And then I the real reason that I ended up putting this on here was because I was watching the call of the Daniel Vogelbach walk-off grand slam in Milwaukee yeah. against the Cardinals. Love to watch the Cardinals lose in heartbreaking fashion, by the way. Uh, I'm just going to play that audio for you real quick. Down three. Tying run is at first. The pitch. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right. Are you kidding me? Doggy! A walk-off grand slam! My, oh my. How about that? Oh, baby! Woo! It's all about right there. That's why we watch the games for the chance to watch a walk-off grand slam in the bottom of the night. from our big beefy boys over in Milwaukee. He is massive, dude. He gets mm-hmm. bigger every time I see him. It's just shocking. I love it. Uh, okay, what's next up for you? Uh, next up for me is uh, is maybe a funny one to be putting it up, but um. Some capital B baseball, capital P people aren't getting the COVID vaccine. 
Have you heard about this, Bobby? Yeah. Have you heard that one or two people aren't interested in getting the shot? I happen to recall that. Yeah. Uh, the Nats put in place a uh, mandate this week that, or the Nats announced this week uh, that they would start letting go full-time employees who would not get vaccinated, which led to Nationals Vice President Bob Boone of the Boone family fame resigning. The man, the 73-year-old, said, you know what? I'd rather leave my cushy job in the Nationals executive's office because I'm a principled man and I got to respect it. I really do. He said, I will not give in to the liberal media craze over Pfizer. The, the, the vaccine news that I enjoyed more this week was that MLB Network refused to allow both Al Leiter and John Smoltz from being in their studios because they too refused to get the vaccine. And they went on to accommodate them by setting up you know, studios in their home so they could broadcast from there, which I think sucks. Yeah. Because fuck them. I agree. I I want to say really quickly because there's like a lot of I'll keep this short because we're we're running short on time here, but there's like a lot of people being like, oh, you know, I think that you should get the vaccine, but also to fire people over it is so harsh. But these people, would you want them to do this to you at your job? Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe if I refused to do something that was going to keep my coworkers safe, maybe I would want a workplace that would let me go for something like that. Just saying workplace safety actually does involve people opting into things whether that be a vaccine or whether that be not setting tables on fire when you walk into the office like the these are people can die okay, well from this. can we not go All too right, far I, I love setting tables on fire when we go into the office but people can die from this you can kill people from this you can kill mm-hmm. other people's family members because you didn't want to get the vaccine i have to hand it to john smoltz who continues his journey of getting as far away from baseball as possible <laughs> Well, actually, being like on a live broadcast during the World Series. <laughs> right, exactly. He said, no, you guys, it's okay. I don't have to work. And MLB Network was like, no, 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 no. it's okay. We'll accommodate you. <laughs> Smoltz was like, fuck, I had an out here. All right. Uh, my next up this week is, Alex, the wildcard races are good. Yeah. They're really good. They're There's, just good old-fashioned. Yeah, we're at the part of the, part of the podcast, hour 45 in, <laughs> where we're just talking about baseball now. They're, I'm here for it. Yes. Welcome to actual baseball talk. No, th- the wildcard races are good, and it just it draws such a stark contract just la- with last year where the wildcard races sucked. You know why? Because they expanded the playoffs on the day yeah. that the season started, and over half the teams made the fucking playoffs. Teams that were under five hundred were like, "Yeah, we're making the playoffs." It was so stu- silly and so anti-competitive and, and against in the complete opposite direction of what baseball has been for so long, which is a ton of games weed out, get the best teams. Like it's such a ref- It's such a refreshing thing to watch this happen again, where like the, the teams in the wildcard race actually need to win these games to get in. It's not like the 20th best team in baseball is like sneaking in by the skin of their teeth. It's cool, man. And at least aside, which is a joke of a division and should just be banished. And yet, still has two teams that are making a push right now. Hey, I mean, I mean, three. T- sorry, three teams. Three teams. 
The Mets are 69 and 69. They're only four and a half games out of a wild card spot. They're I think you're underrating right the there. fact that after 138 games of the season, the Mets are 69 and 69. Yes, I know. Obligatory. Yeah, yeah. Nice. If if we get a Yankees Red Sox wild card game, A, it's going to be a quite insufferable lead up to that broadcast. The way it is going to be marketed the hell oh by, God, yeah. by ESPN or whoever is carrying it. B, I think my desires for the A's getting into the playoffs aside, the 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 good part about that is that it means we'll only have one of those teams in the playoffs. The funniest possible scenario is the Red Sox eliminating the Yankees. I know. After this, after the Yankees' furious comeback into contention, they make the wild card game and they lose to Chris Sale. That's hilarious. Yeah. The team who literally said out loud like two years ago, like, yeah, we kind of got to, we got to reset things. It's time. The team who said at this trade deadline, we're not good enough to trade to add at the deadline. Mm-hmm. Heimbloom like kind of said that verbatim, but yeah. anyway, um, Red Sox are winning <laughs> despite their own best intentions. Literally, okay. Next up for you, this is your final up, right? Yes, it's my final up, and it's just Salvador Perez. Oh yeah, that is it. That's the tweet. Like I said, it's real baseball hours here. I just he is. I feel like he is running against the grain of the way that the sport has turned in the last decade or two, which is certainly away from catchers who can hit away from catchers who, I mean, he does not catching every game, but who plays in a majority of his team's game the whole year players who spend the entirety of their career on one team. I mean, I hope he achieves what Danny Duffy could not. I was just you know? going to say, Sal Prez is the new Barry Mir Royal. Yeah, seriously. I mean, he's having an amazing year, and I really, I really just love it. I wish we had more teams who locked up guys for their whole career. I understand that, like, it's probably antithetical Alex to like said, the no way free that they <laughs> make the free agency hey, cut off your forty-one and a half. <laughs> if the if the player says pay me for it, why not? Right. The player has the buy-in. I I don't know. I just enjoy it. And it's also just out of nowhere. I mean, the fact that I I've I, I won't take credit for this, uh, but Alex Fast tweeted out the two players leading baseball in home runs are a pitcher and a catcher. Otani press. Is that true? It's yeah, bro. Sal has more home runs than Vlad Guerrero. Mm-hmm. Wow, he's having even a better year than I thought. I knew he was. I knew he was raking, but that's absurd. All right, Alex, my final up this week. It occurs to me that we've gone this entire podcast without talking about what happened with the Mets last week, with the thumbs up, thumbs down controversy. Boo-gate. Controversy. Boo gate. I like that. That's pretty good. Uh, it it's not worth talking about at this point. It literally feels like a month ago. But specifically, Javier Baez. My final up this week is Javier Baez's unpredictability on a baseball field. And that can be good. That can be bad. It can be indifferent. Just the sheer fact that I get to sit down 
and watch a baseball player on my favorite team do stuff that I didn't expect him to do. Like I feel like we are so baseball players are so well honed, they are so well crafted from such a young age now. That's not it's pretty rare to get a player that just does stuff that wows you, good or bad. He just makes you feel something. And Javi is like I think if not the number one player right up there with Tatis and Otani and but even Otani like his greatness is kind of predictable like he's going to smash a home run. Although he did steal home last week which was amazing. But these guys they they the reason that they are so exciting is because they do stuff that you don't expect them to do. Javi scoring from first, diving into home plate, losing his earring and having the GM of the team down on hands and knees searching for his $50,000 as, as the GM of baseball teams should be. Yes, exactly. That's that's what they should do. GM should actually just be the grounds crew. Um, I love it. I love it. I love Javi. I think the whole thumbs down controversy was absurd and there was nobody was right in that scenario. I'm glad that we forgot about it and didn't talk about it this week. Yeah, we kind of blew over it, which I'm, I'm similarly happy about. There's no right take. No good takes there. He's just such a smart player. He's such a smart player. Like, his intangibles, his baseball IQ, it cannot be overstated. The play that he, the highlight play that he made with Marcus Stroman, where they're turning the double play, Lindor drops the ball, Javi runs back over and picks it up immediately, and Stroman runs over to cover third, and they tag out Soto. Like, that stuff, you can't teach. You can't teach the uninhibited aggressiveness that he has to score on a tag up from third base on shallow fly balls. Like that stuff is magic. There's a reason they call him El Mago. Yeah. Justice for Javi. Justice for Javi. Extend Javi. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Can you imagine? That would be sweet. I would not be ready for that. Uh, That does it for this week, Alex. Quick shout out to all the people who shared photos of our merch on Twitter. That is Navneet. Thank you, sir. Colin. Thank you, Colin. Tyler. Thank you. Hops and Pots. Thank you. Kerm. Thank you. And uh, this is a Twitter account with the name Minor Leaguer. Minor underscore Leaguer. Who is actually a a writer for SB Nation. Um, But just Minor Leaguer. Sorry, I don't know your real name. Yep, that does it for us this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and maybe drop a review if you feel so, if you're feeling kind. Someone review us so Alex can stop saying this is the end of every podcast. We need a new review. We haven't gotten one in a couple weeks. Someone be that person. Be the change that Alex wants. Be the change that I want so that Alex doesn't have to say this at the end of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to say it anyway. I know, I know, I know. It's your job. It's the only thing you got to say. Okay. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya.